With that, let's pray and get into Hebrews chapter 7. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We um, thank you for this great letter uh, to the Hebrews. Uh, we don't know what man you used by your spirit to, to, to pen this book. We don't exactly know who the recipients were at the time. But we do know that, um, that this letter was written as the, the, the temple was still operational. The sacrifices were going on. The, the, the priesthood was, was continuing the Mosaic Law in many ways. And there were a group of followers of yours who came to know Jesus as the Messiah. And as a result, they underwent a, a, a ton of persecution. We're told that there were many who were executed for their faith in Christ as the Messiah. And they wrestled with things that were very unique to them. And so, Lord, we ask, that as we enter the seventh chapter of Hebrews, we ask that you would help us to, um, to understand the historical context uh, that we find ourselves. Uh, help us to understand uh, what the author of this letter was trying to communicate to the recipients, uh, that we would have a better understanding of what was happening. And Father, I ask that you would help us to, to, to bridge the gap, that we would understand uh, principles that apply to us today. I do ask that you would help us to understand um, the, the great argument that is happening in this chapter. Uh, Lord, um, really help us to uh, gain understanding in the things that your word is trying to communicate to us this day. We are grateful, Lord, for this opportunity that we have uh, to worship you through uh, through singing, through fellowship, through our giving, uh, through the studying of your word, we um, don't take the freedoms that we have for granted. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us attentive minds and, and soft hearts this day. When it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham 
and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received the tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clear still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so I'm going to ask for a volunteer just to come up here and to share about this chapter. Anybody, any volunteers just to kind of tackle this one? Um, you know, I've, I noticed in my study, I've read just about everything. I've listened to tons of messages, and, and I, it seems that a lot of people were tempted to just sort of skip over this chapter, not thinking that people would notice that they skipped over this chapter. Uh, you, you will know this chapter when we're done with it. Um, uh, sort of the first point of application is we are a church that believe in the uh, expository teaching of the Word of God. So we're going to go sort of line by line of uh, of the book. I can't skip pieces. I certainly have uh, never chosen Hebrews chapter 7 when asked to go speak somewhere. I say, hey, you can speak on whatever you want. I've never landed in Hebrews chapter 7. Um, but it is a huge, huge chapter. Um, uh, it's very difficult to know how to split it up, how to how to break this chapter. On, on, on one hand, doing it all at once would be very convenient, but it might take about two and a half hours. Um, so I've opted to sort of take chapter seven in two parts. Um, hopefully I can get it done in less than two total, not just today. Um, our limitation... With all of Hebrews, but but in particular in chapter seven, as the the issue of Melchizedek comes up, is is number one. Most of us aren't Jews, like really, most of us are Gentiles, and, and so we're very removed from the context. Even if you were a Jew sitting here, if you were just visiting from the local temple and you came down and we read chapter seven, you still would be left in the dust. Um, the, the context just isn't Jewishness. The, the, the context has to do with these are a group of believers who were Jewish, who at the time of, the, of writing, we believe in A.D. 65 to 68 in that, that window, 
where the temple is still operational, the temple is still uh, moving, the, the, the priests are there, um, they're making their sacrifices, people are paying their tithes to them. Those who have followed Jesus as the Messiah walked away from the temple and they were facing persecution, pressure, coercion from their family, their neighbors, their friends, their peers. Some have drifted back to the temple. And the author is trying to show to them that Jesus is indeed a priest. This is a sophisticated apologetic to those that were struggling in a, in a very unique way, the closest that I think that I've ever come to, to this in my experience in my Christianity was be, be, becoming a Christian and then sort of finding myself at a Protestant church and n- not even really knowing that I was in an argument, the, the pressure I found myself from my family, uh, my, my dad, my, some of my siblings, um, is how could I walk away from the Catholic Church? The Catholic Church has such old roots and, and goes way back so close to, to Christ. And now you're going to this like non-denominational church that has no roots, that sprung up during the 60s, during the crazy Jesus movement. And, and, and I was like, well, I, I, don't, I'm like, I don't know. I, don't know. I, just, I just go and they teach the Bible and it makes sense. That was kind of my answer. But that was the closest, I think, that I've, I've come and it's nothing compared to what they were going through. That, that Judaism, it was everything. It was their, their culture, their community, their family, their, their faith. But now they've departed and they're following this Jesus. And so the author is trying to help his readers, number one, to make sense of, of, of who this Jesus is, who we know as a prophet, priest, and king. If you were a Jew during that time, there's going to be some issues that we're going to address today. Um, okay, without any further ado, let's sort of get, get a baseline of Hebrews. Um, Hebrews begins in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. This lengthy sentence in the Greek that's trying to convey a point that I think is a, is a central theme in Hebrews. It says that God, after he spoke long ago to the Father's in the prophets, in many portions, in many ways, he's saying God has spoken. That's the verb of this long sentence that stretches four verses in the English. God has spoken. In the past, he spoke through, all, through prophets, through dreams, all, through a donkey. There are all sorts of ways in the Old Testament. But in these latter days, today, and at the time of writing, he's now speaking to us through his son. That's Jesus. Jesus is on trial in the letter of Hebrews. And in chapters 1 and 2, the first comparison that Jesus is forced uh, to compare his greatness to is angels. And so the author lays out his case for why Jesus is greater than angels. He starts in chapter 1 really with Jesus' deity uh, in his heavenly form, that Jesus in his deity is greater than angels. Then in chapter 2, he shifts to his humanity in his incarnation showing that even as his becoming man he didn't give up his greatness over angels that in his life in his death in his burial and in his resurrection he still is greater than angels 
as we turn the page into chapter 3, he begins to introduce that Jesus is greater than Moses. Uh, Moses is the man who by angels was revealed the law, the commandments. He was revered by the Jewish people. And so the author of Hebrews makes the case and shows how Jesus is greater than Moses. It's sort of coupled with this warning that as in the days of Moses, we should uh, not fail to demonstrate faith in what God was doing and harden our hearts and fail to respond. He pleads with them, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As we get into chapter 5, the subject that we're on today, it's sort of introduced. Uh, Jesus is introduced as a high priest. The subject of Melchizedek comes up. By the time he gets to verse 10, he realizes that he's going to have some struggles in communicating the things that he needs to communicate about Melchizedek. And so in chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6 to the very end, there's sort of this parenthetical thought where the author of Hebrews is sort of dealing with some pastoral care and concerns. He's, he's prompting them that they should be growing at a faster rate than they are currently growing. He addresses the concern of those who left Judaism, began to follow Jesus, but then succumbed to the pressures and then drifted back under Judaism, uh, under uh, the law and back into the temple. So he helps them to cope with that. Then verses 9 to the end, or to, uh, to verse 18, he sort of encourages them again, gives them an attaboy that there's fruit, they're doing good, he's heard about it. Keep keep up the good fight. Don't be lazy. Um, keep, keep your hands to the plow and follow after Jesus because it's worth it. Then by the time we come to 19, he's going to re-enter into the subject that he wants to address. And he says, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, the hope, both sure and steadfast, the one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, and now he's about to introduce the subject. Chapter 7 is difficult. The first half is worse than the second half. It's, it's, in studying this, I really wrestled with, I, I, I preach out of the New American Standard Bible mainly because this is a Bible I've used since Bible college. It's been rebound a couple times. I'm very, it's like, it's like my, my, my home. This week, I was like, maybe I need to preach out of the New Living Translation, which I really enjoy. Um, the, the New American Standard, it's, it's very reliable, very wooden, very sort of word for word in its translation. It doesn't, um, what we would call the dynamic equivalent, it doesn't sort of fill in the gaps to help us understand the, the heart uh, in, in our language to understand what's being said. It's, it's just sort of like it, it comes across very broken and hard to follow. And particularly in this week's uh, section, it, it's one of these, it's like, what did he just say? So I want to cheat a little bit. If we can see where he's going... Uh, 
I think it'll help us in the next two weeks sort of keep our bearings of, of what he's trying to accomplish. So over in chapter 8, verse 1, he says what his point is. So in chapter 8, verse 1, we read, Now the main point in what has been said is this. It's like, oh, thank you, Lord. He's going to tell us what he's trying to accomplish. Um, we already know that as he entered into this conversation before, he stopped to sort of like reprimand the people to tell them, hey, put on your thinking caps. You really need to think deep here. The subject matter is difficult, so I need you to stay with me. And after he gets to it, he says the sort of the main point that what I'm trying to accomplish is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Now remember the context. We have to keep in mind the temple is up and running. Within the temple, there's the holiest of holies. Remember, there was a veil at the cross. It was split in two. The only reason that we would know about that is that there were priests who came to faith in Christ who then shared about that. But the temple continued running. I'm sure the repair was done. They went back to business as normal after Jesus left. They had the authority. They had the control. This is what people were struggling with. The author of Hebrews says, no, when Jesus ascended, he ascended to this different tabernacle, the true tabernacle that wasn't built by men, that was built by God. And he is there functioning as the true high priest. But the Jewish people say, but we have this high priest. And there's going to be some things that we're going to have to work through. So let's just begin. I can only give so much of a background to try to ease us into it. We eventually just have to get into it. So the outline here, the first three verses of chapter 7 that we're covering today, this is sort of just a, uh, this is a recapping of the story in Genesis 14 to help us understand what is being said. Verses 4 through 10 is an explanation describing the significance of the story. And then verses 11 through 17 that we're covering today sort of deal with the inadequacies of the law and why things had to happen the way they happened based on everything he said. So verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. So here's the first uh, verse or verse and a half. Um, He simply, if you were to go to Genesis 14 and you were to read the last portion, this is essentially what you would see there. There's some parts that are left out. The author of Hebrews introduces us uh, to Melchizedek, that number one, he's a king. He's the king of Salem. Uh, Salem is uh, the city that we know today as Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So this is the king of Jerusalem. We are also introduced to Melchizedek and that he's a priest of the Most High God. Now, important for us to sort of follow away in our brains. It's going to come up later. But I, I, I want to help us along in our Jewishness. See, for the Jews, they would have problem. They would begin arguing back with us. We know Jesus. I've already said it once that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. They would go, okay, he could be a prophet, could be a king, but he can't be a king and a priest simultaneously. 
So you have, an, you have a problem that you're going to have to reckon with us. And so right away as Melchizedek is introduced to us, what do we see about him? We see that he is a priest of the Most High God and he is also a king of Jerusalem. So there's precedence. This is going to factor in huge to the Jewish mind. I just want us to sort of file that away, kind of have that as we're working through this passage. We also learned that the context of Melchizedek was war. As we turn the page to Genesis chapter 14, verse 1, we see that the first war is really described in scriptures. This is really World War I that's happening. Uh, Israel, north and south, Beersheba's on the bottom, Dan is on the, the northern part. Uh, we learned that these, these four, I believe, nations, uh, four kings, begin warring with one another. Abraham's just on the sidelines. He's not involved. He really doesn't want to, he's not, we're not told, but it's clear he doesn't really want to get involved. Um, as the fighting is happening, uh, one of the kings takes Lot, who is Abraham's nephew, into custody and basically hauls him away. Uh, a guy who was in battle up there gets down to Abraham and tells Abraham, hey, your nephew has been taken into custody and he's, he's now a prisoner of war. Abraham's like, okay, that's enough. It's time for me to get involved. So he gets all of his guys up and he goes and he basically takes care of business. He basically destroys all of the kings. He, he goes from the south of Beersheba all the way up to, to Dan. He gets Lot freed. He takes all of the plunder and he begins his journey from the north of Dan down south past Jerusalem on the east side of Jerusalem, making his way back to Beersheba or that area. And as he's passing by the east side of Jerusalem, we're told that Melchizedek meets him. <clears throat> Not mentioned in Hebrews, but as in Genesis, we're told first off about Melchizedek is that he meets Abraham with bread and wine. It's an interesting thought. There's probably not too much to it, uh, but it's very sort of picturesque of Christ at the, at the Lord's Supper when he uh, gives uh, the bread and the wine. There's, there's some similarities here. Hebrews, the author doesn't make much of it, so we're going to not make much of it. Um, we're told that as he meets him, that he blesses Abraham, and that Abraham, with all of the spoil of war, he gives a tenth of everything that he's sort of uh, taken in combat, and he gives it to this Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem and uh, the priest of the Most High God. Those are the facts. Uh, the second part of v verse 2 and into verse 3, <clears throat> he begins to transition and to show us the significance of this. So first off, uh, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. So we're told that Melchizedek in Hebrew, it literally means king of righteousness. Very much Jesus is the king of righteousness. We see some pictures here sort of going back and forth. We also are told the meaning of Salem, that it means peace. And so if he's the king of Salem, that means that he's the king of peace. Jesus very much is the king of peace. Then we get into the complexity of verse 3. Then over the course of my study, my views on Melchizedek have changed. Happens as you study the Bible. Like I don't, I'm the first to admit I don't know everything about the Bible. And so as I study, my views adjust and I change. So in verse 3 we read, Without father without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, 
but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. So we have some things here. We have, uh, so the, my view that I've sort of adjust on is there, there's a number of people who would hold that uh, this Melchizedek is sort of a, um, a Christophany, a, a pre-incarnate Christ showing up in the pages of, of the Old Testament. Um, the angel of the Lord is an example where we see this, and it's sort of, we, we read some things uh, we, we read issues that appear to be divine, and so then we have to sort of reconcile how do we handle this, and, and so, sort of through the process of elimination, we sort of conclude it has to be a pre-incarnate Christ. Now, I used to hold that, but the more I study this passage the, the, over this week, I, I'm less inclined um, to hold that position. However, I can see how, like at a, at, a, at a glance over the surface, you could very easily conclude that if somebody put it in your mind. But then as you dig deeper, you run into some problems, like the very last part of this verse. It says, but made like the Son of God. It doesn't say, the author of Hebrews very well could have said, this was Jesus. But he says that this Melchizedek was like the Son of God. So there's a distinction. And the, um, I'm trying to see how far I need to go here. Um, so he could have made the case very clearly that this was a pre-incarnate Christ. His, his emphasis, the point he's trying to make, isn't doing with the eternality of him as an individual. He's trying to make the case for his office of priesthood. Um, that very last remains a priest perpetually. Um, so on pa- paper... He has no parents. He has no birth date. He has no death date. He has no beginning or end. And so, literally speaking, he, his office is perpetual. For us to understand this, we need to understand how the, Levi, the Levitical law, how the priesthood worked. Um, They had a beginning and an end. You could trace, if you are a priest in the Levitical system, you know exactly who all of your uh, genealogy is. You know who everybody is, proving that you have been commissioned by God to serve in this capacity. It's like I have, you know, we had puppies, Joel told me. I wasn't trying to, like, market puppies, but we have puppies. And, and our, um, you know, our, our puppies have certain genealogical sort of things like first there's like their breed like we know that they're a certain breed because the AKC shows all of their lineage going back and all of the titles within are all documented at the AKC so when I sell somebody a puppy they know okay this is this breed because we have all the paperwork if you were a priest you had all of the paperwork showing your that you, that you go back to Aaron that and when you turn 25, you could start doing internships at the temple. At 30, you could become a priest. At 50, your priesthood was over with, period. 30 to 50 is what you could serve. So now in the pages of Scripture, when we talk about Melchizedek, he has no beginning, he has no end. We, we don't know who his parents are. We don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. He just appears in Genesis 14 in this story. He's a priest that appears to Abraham. Then he goes away. He's not mentioned again in the whole of the Bible until Psalm 110 when King David, some thousand years later or whatever, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, 
references the Messiah being of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And then the scripture goes silent about Melchizedek until we come to Hebrews, really chapters 5 through, I don't know, 10 or so. So this is a huge, sophisticated apologetic, and we're laying the foundation today. So Melchizedek is known as a type in the scripture. There's type and anti-type. There's a, there's a type in the Old Testament, which sort of is a, a foreshadowing of something greater that's to come. The anti-type is the fulfillment of it. Uh, Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible defines it this way, uh, a, bran- a branch of biblical interpretation in which the element found in the Old Testament prefigures one found in the New Testament. The initial one is called the type, and the fulfillment is designated the anti-type. Either the type or anti-type may be a person, thing, or event, but often the type is messianic and frequently refers to salvation. It works in working with types at safest. The safest procedure is to limit them to those expressly mentioned in the Bible. The book of Hebrews is replete with examples of types which represent the Messiah. So, so through the course of my study, in short, as I've I've come to understand now that I think Melchizedek was an actual person that was born, but we don't know who his parents were. I I believe that he died. Um, I believe that he was a priest. He's clearly like this priest. He's also a king. He appears and then disappears, and he essentially, on paper, as far as the Jews were concerned, he becomes this uh, perpetual priest or his office or his line of uh, priesthood goes on perpetually because we, like the Levitical priest system, he they have a beginning and end and you know everything about them. This guy just shows up on the paper. And if you're a Jew, you'd begin to push back. But the author is making a huge case and he's going to explain why this is so significant in verse 4. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. So now he's circling back around. He's going to begin teaching on this passage that we find in Genesis 14. So the first thing he says that he wants us to do is he wants us to observe how great Melchizedek is. And in order to make his case about how great Melchizedek is, he's, he's going to contrast Melchizedek to Abraham. All through Hebrew so far, it's been Jesus being contrasted to angels, to Moses, to whatever, the law. Now the person on trial is Melchizedek. Melchizedek is going to be contrasted with Abraham, and the Levitical priesthood. And in essence, as he makes his case for Melchizedek, he's making his case for the order of priesthood that Jesus comes from. So bear with me. Keep your thinking caps on. Don't, don't, don't wander off to lunchtime just yet. So we're observing how great Melchizedek is. When he mentions Abraham, he's going to use a, a term connected to Abraham that, that, that really elevates him. The patriarch. Abraham is like, the granddaddy of them all, all Jews. Abraham is the beginning. He is the Jews. There is none greater than Abraham. He is their patriarch. And he's saying, our patriarch tithes to Melchizedek. Continuing in verse 5, he says, and those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commanded, have commandments in the law to collect a tenth from the people that is from their brethren, although these are descendants from Abraham. Stay with me. Don't, don't get lost on this. It's okay, I'll make it. He, he's saying, okay, 
We're talking about Abraham past tense. Now let's talk about present tense, not for us, but for them that were receiving the letter. He, he says, now, the priests who are in the temple, who we all give tithes to, or were commanded to give tithes to, we give them tithes because they've been commanded by God to receive tithes from their brethren. Everybody, themselves included, and those that they're collecting tithes from, all have roots to Abraham. Then he continues, But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tithe from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. So he said, Abraham, who's the foundation of all of their Levitical system, their law, that they've been called to receive tithes amongst their brethren from the descendants of Abraham. If you trace the, the family tree all the way to Abraham, you'll see that there was this other guy, Melchizedek, who's not related to them. And our Abraham tithe to this guy that's out of our system. And Abraham, and from Abraham, and blessed the one who had the promises. What he's saying here is verse 7, but without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So back to the story. There's no dispute. When somebody receives a blessing, it goes from the greater to the lesser. The father blesses the son, or the greater blesses the lesser. So in this case, here's Abraham, who back at the very end of verse 6, we, re- we read, Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. We've already addressed Abraham as, as the patriarch, but now here's Abraham, the, the grandfather of them all, who's sitting on all of the promises. Remember last week, Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham, come outside. Look at all the stars. I'm going to bless you with that many descendants. And the land, it's going to be remarkable. And we saw Abraham's journey of faith from Genesis 12 to Genesis 15 to Genesis 17, ultimately to God testing him by asking him to take his son Isaac through whom all of the blessings would come. And so this Abraham, who this great covenant was made with God, he's the greatest man in human history as far as they're concerned. And yet when he sees Melchizedek, who blesses who? They think Abraham should have blessed Melchizedek, but it's the other way around that Melchizedek is the one who blesses Abraham, the one sitting on all of the promises. And there's no dispute, the greater always blesses the lesser, what he says in verse 7. Then he continues in verse 8. In this case, mortal men receive tithes. We're talking about the Levitical priesthood. But in that case, we're talking about Melchizedek. One receives them of whom it witnessed that he lives on. So what it's saying is the priests that we tithe to today, for the Jews living near that time, they give to guys who have their priesthood from 30 years old to 50 years old, then they go away. Everything's documented. Back in Abraham's case, Abraham tithed to this priest who, literally speaking, his priesthood is perpetual. It, It has no beginning, it has no end, it always was, as far as they could tell on paper. And so to speak, verse 9, through Abraham, even Levi, who received the tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Okay, this is a clever apologetic. So as the author of Hebrews is writing, he goes back, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. I think we got that. We got that Melchizedek is less than, or Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. 
because he gave the blessing in response, Abraham tithed to him. In his DNA, if you follow out historically, you'd come to Aaron, you'd come to the Levitical priesthood, and so followed all the way down for however many years that present day for them, these priests who took their tithe and they receive, they don't give, he says, I'm going to make the argument that you follow their DNA and you tie them to Abraham. And, and ultimately, on that day when Abraham tithed the Melchizedek, those priests were in the body of Abraham, and so they, in effect, actually tithed to Melchizedek also. And so they're subjected to Melchizedek as well. <clears throat> kind of hard for us to follow. But if you were a Jew living during the time of this, this would be huge. So what does this all mean? This is what he's, sort of, this is what he's getting at in verse 11. He's, he's transitioning to the significance. Through language in the New American Center that's hard to follow. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, so this is a big question. If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, that's a big conditional statement. Uh, If we were to go to Paul in Philippians 3, when he's talking about his old life before Christ, when he describes himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees, circumcised on the eighth day um, of the tribe of Benjamin, all of this stuff, as as, as as his zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. And then he says, as, as to righteousness which is found under the law, this is what we're talking about, he says, I was blameless. But then he came to discover Christ. And Paul realized that he wasn't blameless. Now the law never, as it says, now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, it was never intended that way. The Levitical priesthood had manipulated what God had said to make them think that they could jump through all of the hoops in such a way that they could stand there before men and say, I'm perfect, I'm without sin. It says, now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, and it's not, for on the basis that the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? So if, let's just, if you could achieve perfection through the Mosaic law, there would be no need for another priest to rise up of a different order. But he's saying Jesus rose up as a priest under the order of Melchizedek, and because of this, we're shown the inadequacy of the Levitical system of the Mosaic law, which Galatians, Paul writes, tells us that the, the, the law is to show us that we're sinners in need of a Savior, and it acts, it acts as a schoolmaster or a teacher or a tutor to lead us to Christ, our Savior. So he says, uh, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not to be designated according to the order of Aaron? These are all sort of rhetorical questions. The law is not able to attain perfection. And Jesus did come according to another order, showing us that something significant happened. Verse 12, for when the priesthood changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke 
nothing concerning priests. So here we're back to the apologetic. The author of Hebrews knows exactly how the Jews are going to respond. Jesus can't be a priest. He's of Judah. No priest has ever come out of Judah. Uh, Sure, he can be a king, but any time in our history that a king tries to function as a priest, there's trouble. I remember, I think of Saul trying to act as a priestly function, and he gets in trouble when he wasn't the priest. And so now he's showing from precedence that Melchizedek was a king and a priest. Jesus is of that order, and we get it, that he's from the line of Judah. Never has anybody from the line of Judah been commissioned by anybody to function as a priest in the temple. But what he's showing here is that there's been a change in management. That there's this new dispensation that there has been a change in, in, in life for those who follow God. He's not beating around the bush. He's going straight to their argument and he's showing them what in the world God is doing. And he's not done. He continues in verse 15. And this is clear still, well, for him maybe, but for us it might be a little rough. And this is clear still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of law, of physical requirements. So he's saying that he wasn't born as a Levite. This isn't like this. This is a different way that this this priest is is coming about, and the different way, but is according to the power of an indestructible life. What happened on the third day? He rose from the grave. Jesus conquered death. He's no longer like the living priest who lived for a short while. They become priests at thirty, and then they resign or they retire at fifty, and then they eventually die, and the next generation pops up. This Jesus. He was executed on the cross. He died in front of all. According to the scriptures, he was buried and he rose on the third day. He conquered death. He is indestructible. For it it is attested of him. He's going back to Psalm 110, verse 4, quoting from King David, which is mind-boggling to me that there's like four verses in Genesis. You go a thousand years, and then all of a sudden in Psalm 110, David speaks of Melchizedek again. And what he says is, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That King David, seeing the future coming of the Messiah, pulls this obscure story out of, you can't make this stuff up. Like, you just can't. Like, we have our pages and we have Bible software. These guys are like on scrolls and pat. Like, this has always been a part of God's plan. It's beautiful. Melchizedek was a great priest outside of the Levitical line and prior to the Levitical line. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham because he blessed Abraham. Abraham received the blessing and then returned his tithe to this priest. David, King David, who had received the Davidic covenant, there's the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. This King David says that the Messiah, when he comes, is going to come as a priest according to the Melchizedek priesthood. Powerful. And there's like this whole, so what do we do with this? Like, it's going to get easier next week. But as I think about this, like some of the main things that I see in this story is that Jesus didn't come to continue the Old Testament priesthood. He's not just continuing things as they were. 
when he was asked, he said, I didn't come uh, to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. I think of his last night in John 13, 34, when he looked at his disciples as he's heading into the Lord's Supper, and he says, a new commandment I give to you as he, as he holds his, the cracker or the, the Passover bread. He says, this is my body which is broken for you. Then he shows the cup, this is the new covenant. This is Jesus is totally uprooting the law and he's laying a, a brand new foundation of grace. This week we've, um, we've been undergoing a project at our house. You know, every, every year when it rains, I have about a week where I complain to everybody about like I'm out there. It'll be two in the morning. I'm out there with my broom trying to get the water flowing away from the house. And I would say, oh, I'm going to get around to it. I'm going to get around to it. Well, finally I got to it. So we started figuring out, like, okay, what, like, I think that there's lines down there. Like, I, I think when they built this house, because there's, a, like, a hill that comes to my backyard, like, my back door, and so they certainly would have designed for runoff or something. And so we, and when I say we, I don't mean me, I mean the guy that I hired, he's been digging the trench, and so we get down there, and we see the four-inch pipe, and it's like, it, 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 like, he thought, well, maybe some of it we can reuse, but then when we get down there, it's it's kind of like, leach line pipe. We're all Valley Center people. We know leach line. You know, the holes are in it so that water can flow through and it can leach out into the field. And it's like, ah, I see what they were thinking 40 years ago. They thought they'd dig a hole, put the leach-filled pipe, then there was gravel over that, and then they would, um, the water would just go into there and it would go into the pipe and it would run away. So we dig it all out. And it's like, well, we can't use that pipe. We've got to lay a new pipe, solid pipe, pipe that will work. And then 40 years from now, when the next guy owns the house, says, what was that guy thinking? You know, kind of like that's something else. <laughs> so this picture of like, we're ripping out this pipe, we're laying new pipe in there. The law was fulfilled. We're in this new dispensation of grace. And the point is, what Jesus did was radical. We never were saved by the law. It cuts against everything that we know. We live in this economy where if you want something done, you ask somebody to do it, then you pay them to do it. Or, or if somebody does something for you, then you kind of have this little uh, picture in your mind that you have to reciprocate the favor because they did it for me, so I have to do it. It's the funniest thing with thank you cards. It's like, well, they did this. So I gotta. That's a different subject. We're told that we're saved by grace. Not only are we saved by grace, but Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 that we're to stand in grace, we're to live in grace. We're, we're in this whole different economy. The, the picture of Paul, like it makes so much sense. Like Paul in Romans 7, when he says, the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, that, that's what I end up doing. Paul, Paul wasn't out getting like sloshed at the bar. You know, like I'm thinking from a total human, like, oh, my slipping back under my, my flesh, this is going out into the world. Paul was a, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. For him to slip back the things that he was doing, he was slipping back under the Levitical system, slipping under religion. This is the very thing that he challenges Peter, the apostle. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, he says, I had to, I had to challenge Peter publicly because the Judaizers came around and he would suddenly like, start acting like he was all under that, that rule. And so for us to learn to live according to grace is the hardest thing I think that we as Christians can do. It's not by our works that we're saved. It's because of his work, of what he did for us.
We're saved by grace. We're to be filled with grace. We're to treat other people with grace. It's revolutionary. And it can only be done because we serve this priest who is of a different priesthood, the order of Melchizedek. And he's going to, it'll get easier next week. And so, Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for this word. It's a tough word. It's hard for us to follow, and I, I pray that you would help us to retain the things that we need to keep. Father, if we keep one thing, that Jesus is greater than the law, that Jesus is the greatest priest, I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand our relationship with you isn't based on our performance. It isn't based on our having to keep the commandments. But it's based on a relationship with you. Based on the work that Jesus did on the cross. Father, this doctrine of grace is more than we can fathom, more than we can understand. I am so good at beating myself up for my sins and failures of the past and present. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us by your spirit to, to be transformed by this understanding of grace. Father, I thank you that Jesus paid it all for us, totally and completely. I thank you that our life and our living for him flows out of gratitude for what he has done on our behalf. Lord, we ask that you would help us to live by grace and that we would be a gracious people. We love you, Father, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.